Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, hello, everybody, and I'm excited to be with you today and doing a episode on a dispensational issue. This one actually comes from the mailbag, as you might say. I had somebody ask if we could do an episode on Joshua 21, 43 through 45, which some covenant theologians will often use to show that the Abrahamic covenant has been completely fulfilled and that there is nothing left as far as the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled, and so we should not use that in our eschatological interpretations. Well, I think it's helpful to take a look at this because it is a great uh, interpretive issue when you get to the book of Joshua. And so I'm going to read it for us in the ESV. This is Joshua 21, starting in verse 43 through 45. We get this, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So when you read that, just on a surface level reading, we could interpret that as saying, okay, God had fulfilled all of the promises that he had made to the house of Israel. They'd all come to pass. Nothing had failed. And so some covenant theologians, and not all of them, because there are two different ways that covenant theologians will approach this issue, but some will say, take this verse and say, Well, do you see the promise that was given to Abraham as part of the Abrahamic covenant? You have him being promised land. You have him promised seed and blessing. Well, the seed and blessing definitely were uh, have at least taken part uh, in in partial, if not in fullness. And then you also have the land blessing, which is as Joshua 21 is explaining, uh, having been completely fulfilled on God's behalf as well. Now, for a dispensationalist, a dispensationalist will often read the Old Testament and say, as he's looking toward the future, that the Abrahamic covenant is still in operation. It still is an eternal covenant in that regard. It is perpetual, and we have an expectation for Israel to receive the land that God has promised them, and that's going to come in its fullness in the future, in a millennial kingdom. That's uh, where we would relate Revelation 20 and those promises. But the question is, should Israel expect the land promise in the future? And so a lot of people will point to Joshua 21 as evidence for the fact that the land promise to Israel has already been fulfilled because it says, All the good promises that God had made to the house of Israel, uh, not one had failed, all came to pass. And so when we read that, it is is definitely a possible reading that it's saying everything that God has promised had, had taken place, and there's no reason to expect anything further to be fulfilled. But we need to admittedly say that there are even other covenant theologians 
along with all the dispensationalists who would say, no, you can't really take this passage to mean that because of the alternative evidence. And so we're going to walk through some of these issues just in in kind of a survey fashion as to what we need to be thinking about and how, how to address some of these issues. While I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a ETS paper. ETS is the Evangelical Theological Society. It's a kind of a nerdy conference where evangelicals will meet together, seminary professors, college professors, and those academically inclined will meet together and present research on topics. And one of my uh, heroes, uh, one of my former professors at Master Seminary, uh, Dr. Greg Harris, had done a paper on Joshua 21. And I had remembered that. I remember reading it a couple times. And so I dug that back out and I will refer to it a little bit in some of the research that he's done. For example, in in the beginning section, he does have a few covenant theologians who quote this passage saying, boom, the debate is over. The land has been completely fulfilled to Israel, so you can't use that as an expectation for the future. But like I said, that is not a, a normal covenant theologian position. In fact, uh, if you read some of the newer or I, I guess I could say more modern uh, covenant theologians and even new covenant theologians, you'll see more of a view like espoused by Gentry and Wellam in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, where they say that the land isn't necessarily completely fulfilled in Joshua 21, but it's, in their mind, quote, very clearly a type given to the fuller expansion. So in other words, even though the land promised Israel was never literally realized it it was meant to always fade away into the reality of the new heavens and new earth and that's how most i would say covenant theologians would understand the relationship of land but the question remains how do we view the land promise in the abrahamic covenant and how should we interpret joshua 21:43 through 45 uh, concerning that when when we read through these things and so i think it's helpful to walk through that I think the first uh, thing we want to talk about is just the covenants in general. And this is something that Harris did in his paper. And I think it's, you know, you don't no need to reinvent the wheel here as far as his understanding. And this is typical as far as dispensationalism goes, trying to fit everything holistically into a interpretive framework, which accounts for the literal use of scripture. And so, what a dispensationalist would do, and this is how I think uh, is appropriate to thinking through the whole issue of Joshua 21, is to look at how God makes covenants with his people. So, for example, the first covenant we see is actually the Noahic covenant. And if you look at the stipulations that are given within the Noahic covenant, there's nothing that would indicate any of those stipulations would pass from existence. There's nothing that would stipulate that those uh, those the understanding of that covenant would only exist for a certain generation. In fact, in Genesis nine fifteen, we have the words that this covenant applies to every living creature, not just to humanity, and it is described as an eternal covenant. So, when we think of those descriptors and how we understand the specifics of that covenant, that that the the seasons will continue, uh, day and night will not cease. You know, you'll have the harvest. Uh, you, all these things are are included in the Noahic covenant. There's nothing within that that would indicate 
within the Noahic covenant that would indicate that there's going to be some sort of uh, passing away of that covenant or the covenant ceasing to operate. No, when when you read through the Noahic covenant, it seems to be something very easy to understand, uh, literal, straightforward, and that should be a good starting point for understanding covenants. Well, similarly, when you are introduced to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, we are given some very straightforward, easy to understand promises where God talks to Abraham. And specifically for our purposes, one of the things that's most notable is in Genesis 12, 7, you have God appearing to Abram and saying to your descendants, I will give this land. And when God actually describes the land in Genesis 13, he gives some very specific dimensions to Abraham. And this is where even those who would try to argue for the land promise being a type uh, in the biblical picture, that's where somebody like myself would raise some, some questions saying, well, is that the authorial intent? Because it's it seems to be very clear as God is spelling these things out, he's using actual dimensions saying this is the actual dimension, uh, boundary lines of the land that I'm promising to Abraham. And so that seems to be very important. And not to minimize this, because in Genesis 13, you also have the same descriptor, uh, olam, which you know we normally translate forever or uh, an eternal covenant. That's the same uh, descriptor of the Abrahamic land promise that was used in the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. And so it's important to understand we're not dealing with a unique kind of covenant in the Abrahamic covenant. There was already terminology instilled in covenantal procedure and process in the Noahic covenant. And I think that that's an important starting point or foundation for this discussion. The the Abrahamic covenant, by the way, I don't think we've talked too much about this. Perhaps we've made mention of it a little bit, but it basically unfolds in stages. And so you have the initial uh, revelation of the Abrahamic covenant. You have it, uh, the stipulations expanded, uh, further elucidated in Genesis 13. And then in Genesis 15, you actually have God putting his his own character and name on the line. He's the one who goes through the covenants, covenant making ceremony. He has Abram set it all up, put the, put the, uh, animals in half and Abram doesn't walk through. God walks through symbolizing that he alone is going to take responsibility for the fulfillment of this covenant. And so I think that that's helpful to understand as we see the unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant that God himself is the one who puts himself on on online. Now, in that passage, actually, where God puts himself uh, on display, saying, I'm going to be the one who uh, solidifies this covenant and I will make sure it comes to, comes to pass, in verse 18 of Genesis 15, we see a reiteration of specific land boundaries. And we read there that on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, which there's some debate about whether that's the Nile or whether that's a another stream further uh, northeast of that. That's uh, both are legitimate possibilities. But the next mention is from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. 
So the Euphrates is specifically named in the text as being the northern boundary, northeastern boundary of Israel. And so that's going to come into play when we talk about even uh, the uh, land discussion in Joshua. But from the get-go in the Abrahamic covenant, we are given specific boundaries of what this land is to include, and that land is going to include, uh, as Genesis 15 stipulates, the land that reaches up to the Euphrates. And so if we just, and by the way, you, you might start to let your mind wander thinking, well, wait a second, the Euphrates seems to be quite a bit up there. How does the modern state of Israel compare to that? And if we are to think about uh, the the landmass that we see from Dan to Beersheba, which is you know the the typical uh, boundaries of Israel today, although Israel extends further south in mo- in the modern state all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba, but if we think about that, we're basically looking at a landmass of somewhere around ten thousand square miles, you know, just to round off, and so. 10,000 square miles is pretty significant, but if we're talking about the territory that's described using the river Euphrates as a boundary, we're talking about a landmass that's 300,000 square miles. So that's basically uh, 12 and one half times the size of Great Britain or Ireland. Now, that's pretty pretty large, pretty significant. So what we are, and I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but I'm going to go ahead and say this a couple different times. So I'll go ahead and front it right here is that one of the considerations, and this is why covenant theologians also have to take the route normally that they do of, of saying that the land is a, is a type because no, at no time in Israel's history has their land possession the boundaries of their land possession existed in the fullness of what was promised to them. So let me say that again. At no point in Israel's history have they possessed all the land that was promised to them as part of the Abrahamic covenant. Included, uh, And the easiest way to understand that is the river Euphrates being the boundary marker for that. So when we think about that, uh, application-wise, if just even thinking through Joshua 21, well, that's going to play into how we read that passage as well. So that's why even some covenant theologians, because that's that's a non-debated point. Uh, everyone acknowledges if you study biblical history, at no point did Israel possess the the range all the way up to the Euphrates River, especially during the time of Joshua. There's no indication that they even visited that far. There's, there's no mention apart from in Joshua 1, the river Euphrates at all. And we'll talk about why it's mentioned in Joshua 1 in, in just a moment. So when we think through the Noahic and Abrahamic covenant, there, there seem to, to be some obvious uh, implications and applications. But it's also helpful to think through the Mosaic covenant because in the Mosaic covenant, we have repetition of the land boundaries built into the covenant itself. For example, in Exodus 23, as part of the the covenant book in Exodus 20 through 24, in chapter 23, we have a reference in verse 31 that God will fix the boundary of the Red Sea or from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. 
for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. So again, you have reference to the river Euphrates, and this is being tied into the Mosaic Covenant as well as as a further solidification that God is serious about this promise. And speaking of the Mosaic Covenant, you also have it mentioned in Deuteronomy 11, verse 24. There God says, every place on which the sole of your foot shall tread will be yours. Your border shall be from the wilderness to Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the Western Sea. So again, you have the river Euphrates mentioned as part of the covenant. This is even before Israel enters the land. And so God is promising them uh, in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant. We are also being, uh, we're, we're hearing the same uh, boundary markers mentioned within the context of the Mosaic covenant. And so when we think about how all this plays in, there's this, there's this key to repetition that's going through and all of, all of, all that goes with it. Now, one of the things that Harris points out in his paper, and here I'll make mention of what what he says, and you can you can feel free to uh, read more about this if you just uh, search on Google for uh, Greg Harris, uh, Joshua twenty one forty forty three through forty five PDF. You'll you'll find his papers, and I think he he turned one into a journal article at Master Seminary in their journal as well. You can find more on this, and one of the things that he does is he talks about how Leviticus 26 specifically as part of the Mosaic covenant uh, shows in, in chapter 26 that there's an expectation for Israel's disobedience and repentance and their removal from the land. So that was even before, I mean, this was at Mount Sinai when they were receiving the revelation of Leviticus. And so built into the covenant itself is an expectation a promise from God, if you will, that they will sin, they will go into exile, and then they will be restored. So his simple point is that when you get to Joshua 21 and it says every promise of God has been fulfilled, there's no way you could say, well, wait a second, not all the promises of Leviticus 26 were fulfilled at that time because Leviticus 26 is very specific about what's going to happen. There's going to be a national confession of sin and a restoration of the people. So none of that had happened. So you can't, and this is, this is his argument, saying you can't just take that as a blank, uh, a blank check saying all of this has come to take place. Every single promise that God has made up to this point has, has, has happened and come to pass. And he's just using that as an example. And I think the point is fair. Uh, although I don't want to go into all the details, so I just wanted to summarize that, and you can look at some of the details for that if you want. But for our purposes, I think if we look at the context of Joshua now, we'll have an even better understanding of why Joshua 21 reads the way that it does and how it works within its section. And the first thing to notice is in Joshua 1, verses 1 to 4, you have the reiteration of the boundaries for the land. And so it says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Therefore, rise, cross the Jordan, you and all this people to the land, which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given to you just as I spoke to Moses. And here are the boundaries from the wilderness and Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. So again, and this is important, you have the mention of the river Euphrates in the book of Joshua. 
But as I said before, as you go through the book of Joshua, you have no mention of even an expedition to explore the land uh, toward the river Euphrates. They never get that far because as Joshua points out, they actually have a, have a very difficult time uh, taking and possessing the land that actually is in the land of Canaan. And we actually see this in Joshua 13. Now, before we read the intro in Joshua 13, every commentary, every literary analysis of Joshua acknowledges that Joshua chapters 13 through 21 is one section in the book of Joshua. It's actually an important section talking about the allotment of the land for the people of Israel. And so this whole section is linked together uh, structurally. And as a intro to the book, or sorry, to the section, as an intro to the section, you get this little note uh, in uh, Joshua 13, which says this, this is the land that remains all the regions of the Philistines and all of those of the Geshurites from Shehor, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north, it is as counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, the Gazite, the Ash, Ashdodite, the Ashkelonite, the Gittite, the Ekronite, the Avite to the south, all the land of the Canaan, Merah, that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Aphek to the border of the Amorite and the land of the Gebelite and all of Lebanon toward the east from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as Lebo, Lebo Hamat, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon as far as Misrephotamaim, all the Sidonians. I will drive out drive them out before the sons of Israel, only allot it to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded to you. Now, therefore, apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. So what he's saying, in other words, is that this land has not been given, or, or I could say it this way, this land has not been conquered yet. The enemies still possess this. And as we go through, we find out as we continue to read Joshua and then into Judges that most of this land remains unconquered. It never was conquered because Israel did fail. And so you basically, when you read Joshua 21, which is a summary of the section of the allotments to Israel, which was introduced by Joshua 13, you basically have, well, it's not a contradiction, but if you were to interpret it as a complete fulfillment of the promise that Israel has gotten all the land that they've been promised, it would be a flat-out contradiction with Joshua 13. So every commentator that goes through that has to have some sort of rationale or explanation for what's going on. And so that's helpful or important to understand is that, hey, there was definitely some land that was not conquered, that this this was not uh, accomplished by Israel. And so how do how do we explain that? And so when we think through that, we look at Joshua 1, we say, okay, Euphrates is still the boundary, but that's never mentioned as being conquered by Israel, and, and there's never an allotment that, that goes up to the Euphrates River. And additionally, we look through Joshua 13 through 21, and we see, okay, well, now there are a lot of people, a lot of lands that have not been conquered yet. So the question is, how do we read Joshua 21, 43 through 45. And I think it's obvious in context, you cannot read this 
as saying everything God's promised has taken place. But the majority opinion, or at least the interpretation that I see most people offer on this, both dispensational as well as a few covenant interpreters, is that this is an exclamation about God's responsibility. In other words, God was being faithful. In other words, it would be fair to, to stress the quality over quantity of the promise. And so what it seems to be putting an emphasis on is every single element of God's promise was coming to pass. And from the perspective of Joshua, from the perspective of the people, as they were looking, everything was going exactly the way God promised. As they were being obedient, God was being faithful, exactly in line with the promise of the covenant, because the Mosaic covenant especially, which is now tied into the land promise, stipulates obedience and it blesses obedience and disobedience receives the curses, which as part of the curses is the expulsion from the land. And so those things are tied together now. Now, somebody might say, well, you know what though, that sure, it could be an emphasis on quality rather than quantity. I could grant you that, except it just seems so absolute in the statement of not one word of all the good promises that God had promised would fail. And there's actually an illustration I was thinking about as I was thinking about the way that this verse is actually constructed, because in Hebrew, the word for every is kol, which can sometimes be translated all, all or every, depending on how which word it's modifying. And so in Joshua 21, it's saying, all of the promises God has kept. And I was actually reminded there's a very similar phrase in Psalm 121 in verse 7, where it says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. And they're actually phrased very similarly, at least as far as how that construction goes. But in verse 7 of Psalm 21, if if you would take that same interpretation, you would be forced to the conclusion that God is, preserves his people from from any or all evil. I, that would be the, the straightforward face, uh, surface level reading of the text. And yet that would be nonsense because we all know we suffer. We all know that evil things happen. And so it's not saying that God is guarding us or keeping us from all evil. In other words, nothing evil ever takes place. That's not the idea. But what it, but What a lot of translations will even do there is that the Lord will keep you from all kinds of evil. In other words, he guards us through every element of evil, through every quality of evil, uh, if you want to use that terminology. And so when we think about the, the semantic range of that word, all or every, coal, it can also, it doesn't have to be quantitative, it can be qualitative as has been noted by many grammarians. And so that's really the answer that I go for when we're looking at Joshua 21 is very similar, is that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed, all came to pass. Well, he's not saying that you can check every single promise as being com- completed, that that the, uh, that the Pentateuch contains. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you can you can be assured that every single promise that God has made to the people is in operation. And from this vantage point of the people, from Joshua and the people as they're looking out, 
the God's faithfulness is evident because he has been faithful to what he has promised. It, everything doesn't necessarily have to be completed, uh, quantitatively. In other words, they haven't reached the further boundary, furthest boundaries of their land possession. They haven't even taken over all the land of Canaan because the Philistines still remain. But it's obvious that God has been faithful to his promises and he will continue to be unless they are disobedient. And so there's kind of a built-in warning to this as the segue from Joshua leads to Judges. And how does Judges start? Well, Israel failed to take this part and Israel failed to take this part. And Joshua kind of even senses that in Joshua 24, when he, uh, when he's speaking to the people of Israel, kind of, uh, helping them make a covenant renewal. And he, he challenges them and says, listen, you can't serve the Lord and foreign gods. So choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will obey and serve the Lord. And what's sad is that there's nothing from the people uh, that really indicate at the end of Joshua, this full, full, full-hearted commitment to Yahweh. And so it's, it's kind of a sad testimony, which then segues into, into judges where that, uh, that kind of obedience to, to Yahweh, which was apparently half-hearted in some regards, uh, doesn't last. And so Israel then starts this major spiral down uh, into disobedience. So as, as I read Joshua 21, that's how I would take it. I, I read it as a explanation of God's role in the conquest process, that he has been faithful, that everything that he has prom- promised he is being faithful to qualitatively, and it's a blessing to the people. And that's not just a dispensational reading. There are uh, covenant theologians who would read it that way as well, just because of the contradictions that you would have otherwise with the geogra- geographical promises, even with the section of Deuteron- or Joshua 13 through 21 as well. So I hope that's helpful in thinking through that passage uh, from a dispensational viewpoint. As always, if you have other questions, episodes you'd want me to do, or just have any feedback, love to hear from you guys. Peter at petergaming.com is my email. If you want more from my blog, I put up a couple book reviews and some other articles uh, periodically. You can go to petergaming.com. If you want to check out the seminary where I teach, shepherds.edu is the website for that. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.